So you're going to have to wait another week to hear about Luke chapter 12 that you see on the back of your bulletin uh, because Nathan is out sick this morning. So we can be praying for a quick recovery for him, uh, for protection for the rest of his family to stay healthy in the midst of having the plague in the house. Um, That means you're stuck with the backup point guard today. I use that phrase because basketball is on my mind lately. For those of you who don't know, the college uh, basketball tournament March Madness started earlier this week. And that was what most of my free time on Thursday and Friday was taken up with, was watching March Madness. Uh, The physical endurance and fortitude that those players display is incredible. They never stop moving. When they're on the court, they never stop moving. When their team has the ball, they're running, 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 trying to get open so that they can get the ball and score a basket, right? It's the, the point of basketball. And when they're playing defense, they're chasing, 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 chasing the guy that's running, 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 running. And they're just constantly moving. And the amount of physical endurance that takes is, is incredible. As the least athletic of my parents' four kids, it was exhausting just watching. I think for, I doubled my water intake just watching them. I just like I feel like I should be thirsty right now. However impressive their physical endurance and physical fortitude is, I think um, that the mental and emotional fortitude that those players have to display is exponentially more impressive. This is a bunch of 18 to 20... If the 22-year-olds out on the court are like the graybeards. Most of these guys are 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, and they're out there in front of an audience, a physical audience of, of tens of thousands and a worldwide audience of millions. And if you lose, you're out. I was just watching uh, Minnesota play last night against my Michigan State Spartans, and at the end of the game, it was clear that... Um, Minnesota was not going to win, and there was the players that were seniors were openly weeping because it was over for them. The season was over, and especially the seniors, their basketball career more than likely was over because most of those guys don't go pro. But the emotional fortitude, the, the, the mental fortitude that these guys have to display is incredible. And one particular team um, on Friday stu- stuck, out, uh, stuck out to me the fortitude that they had to, to display. One of the games I watched was between the number one seeded Virginia Cavaliers and the number 16 seed Gardner-Webb Bulldogs. I don't know where Gardner-Webb is. I still don't know where Gardner-Webb is, but I know that they were a 16 seed, which is the lowest seed. Um, March Madness went up to 64 teams in 1985, and over the course of 33 years, a number 16 seed played a number one seed 112 times. And the number one seed won 112 times over the course of 33 years until last year when, again, Virginia, who was the number one seed, got beaten by the number 16 seed by 25 points. It wasn't even close. They got blown out. So I was watching this game, Virginia versus Gardner-Webb on Friday, and late in the first half, Virginia finds themselves down by 14 points. You have to think that the ghost of last year is starting to creep up. They're starting to think, oh no, is this going to happen again? We were the first team in over 30 years to ever do this. Are we going to do it twice in a row? But instead of crumbling under that pressure, and they came back in the second half, and they ended up winning by 15 points. 
And I just have to imagine, again, these young men with this intense amount of pressure on them and the fortitude that it took in order to not crumble under that pressure. Even though I typically root for the underdog, I look at the seeds and I, I root for whatever number is higher unless it's my team. It was, it was pretty inspiring to watch those guys come back. I turned it on when I saw the score, hoping to maybe see another upset. But by the end, it was really cool to see um, just that mental endurance that they had. And it got me thinking about how we react um, when we come up against hardship or trials or opposition or find ourselves up against the wall as we seek to follow Christ and as we seek to fulfill our mission of spreading the good news. And especially when we have sort of the specter of past failures seemingly hanging over our heads. We've been through a long, hard winter. It seems like every family has come down with some sort of the flu. I think we could use some encouragement. And that's my goal this morning is this unexpected opportunity that I have to share with you is to to give encouragement, to remind us of, of the source of our fortitude as we seek to follow Christ. The Apostle Paul is is perhaps the greatest example we can look to in situations where we meet discouragement along the road of following Jesus. He was obviously an incredible minister of the gospel, but he consistently came up against intense opposition. And he experienced his fair share of failures as well. And he also had to deal with the reputation of, of who he was formerly in his life as a persecutor of the church as opposed to a leader of the church. But as we read in the book of Acts, Paul doesn't allow opposition or failure or concerns over his past to get in the way of him living out his mission. So today we're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians 4 in which Paul expresses his fortitude. It's the word of the day, fortitude, in the face of opposition from false teachers or from, uh, from those who fail to respond to the message he preaches. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in to God's word together. So God, I do thank you for today, that we have the freedom to come together, to meet together, to look into your truth and to see what uh, you have to say to us. And so I I pray that you would guide us, that your spirit would guide us as we look into your word this morning. Lord, that you would shower us with your grace, with your love, um, and with the hope found in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to just look at the first six verses this morning of, of 2 Corinthians 4. So I want to read this passage in its entirety first. So 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That first verse there, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. 
We pick up with Paul talking about the ministry that he and Timothy share. This, is, this letter to the Corinthian church is written um, from Paul and Timothy to the Corinthian church. And in the previous chapter, Paul lays out why the message of Jesus as a ministry is supreme over all others. He references the ministry of Moses giving the law to the Israelites and how Jesus fulfilled that ministry, how Jesus replaced that ministry, and how Jesus surpassed that ministry, the ministry of the law. He refers to the ministry of the law in, verse, or in chapter 3, verse 7, as the ministry that brought death. That's what the law does, is the law is the mirror we look into that shows us how inadequate we truly are before God. That's what the law accomplishes. That's why he calls it the ministry that brings death. But the ministry that he and Timothy have, which is the same ministry that you and I have, he calls in, in, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 3, the ministry that brings righteousness. Over the course of his ministry, Paul runs into opposition and frustration of various types, from false teachers that are trying to uh, just get out ahead of him, cut him off at every turn, or maybe people who reject his message. People who drive him out of the city and attempt to even stone him to death. And eventually, he runs into the issue of being imprisoned. It would be easy for Paul to become discouraged, to throw in the towel, to say, I gave this a try. It's too hard. I'm done. If you read through the book of Acts, there are plenty of times where it would have been easy for Paul to just give up. But he doesn't. Instead, Paul says that they don't lose heart. Why? We're working sort of backwards here. Because it's through God's mercy that they have the ministry, the message of Jesus in the first place. But that ministry has been entrusted to them. And Paul doesn't have his platform. Paul doesn't have his ministry because he earned it. In fact, if you could go back and read through the book of Acts with no prior knowledge of what the storyline says, at a certain point, Paul would be the last person that you would expect to devote his entire life to spreading the message of Jesus. In fact, at a certain point, it looks like Paul is going to be the main villain of the story. After they stone Stephen to death, and it says, and Paul looked on with approval. Think, okay, we just met the villain, right? But that's not how things turned out. Something happened to Paul. He encountered God's mercy in meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And Paul was transformed by that encounter. Paul was transformed by God's mercy. And again, not because of anything he himself accomplished or did or earned. And so the reality and constant reminder of God's active mercy in his life, even the reminder of his past, gives him the fortitude when, that he needs when he encounters obstacles or when his message, message of Jesus Christ, falls on deaf ears. Because he knows that the success of his ministry doesn't hang on his own ability. He has it because of the mercy of God. And as we continue, we see Paul address the challenges that he's up against, namely false teachers, and again, those who fail to respond to the message of the gospel, those who reject it. Verse 2, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. 
Paul is outlining how his methods, and ours as well, how they should differ from those who oppose us. He starts out by saying that he's renounced secret and shameful ways. The ESV renders those words as he's renouncing underhanded or disgraceful methods. We don't take part in those. Paul gives two examples of those methods. First, it's deception. He says, we do not use deception. Deception is often the number one shortcut that people take to try and bring someone around to their viewpoint. Deception oftentimes involves leaving out an important detail or even outright lying. About three years ago, automobile maker Volkswagen was heavily sanctioned uh, and several of their executives were criminally charged for their involvement uh, in deceptive practices regarding their so-called clean diesel vehicles. And so basically what Volkswagen did was, in order to get a, a corner on the environmentally conscious consumer market, they advertised their new innovative clean diesel vehicles, which they claimed had significantly fewer emissions than other cars that were comparable. It was later discovered that the only innovation that Volkswagen actually created or came up with was a way to cheat on the EPA emissions tests. And that their vehicles actually, as a whole, had higher emissions than other vehicles of the same category. But over the course of seven years, they sold over 500,000 of their clean diesel vehicles in America alone. They tricked 500,000 people into buying a fake product, basically. And until they got caught, it worked. That's a prime example of what deceptive practices look like. And Paul is saying that we shouldn't have anything to do with those kinds of methods because we don't need them. There's no need for deception as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. The other underhanded method of Paul's opponents was to take Scripture and to twist it. Paul's pointing out that there is a possibility to take God's Word and to make it say whatever we want. We can pull Scripture, we can pull passages completely out of context and change their intended message to whatever serves us best. Oftentimes people do that because they disagree on a human level with what God has deemed right and wrong. Look at it, say, I don't like that. How can I take something in Scripture to make it say what I would rather it say? Paul says, we don't do that. We have no need for it. We don't want anything to do with that. That's even, even that's a form of deception, right? But this is what Paul was up against, these type of methods. And it's what we oftentimes find ourselves up against as we try to be a voice of truth in what we communicate. And it can be discouraging to go up against those kind of tactics. And it can tempt us to lose heart when we feel like we're not uh, playing on an even playing field. But like Paul, we need to constantly remind ourselves that we do, in fact, have the most important thing on our side. And that's the truth. He says, on the contrary, instead of using those methods, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. God, Paul has no need for deception or distortion because he has the truth on his side. 
And I think the most personally encouraging part of Paul's statement here is his description of communicating biblical truth plainly. By setting forth the truth plainly. Oftentimes, I think we can think of ourselves as inadequate to share our faith because we don't consider ourselves dynamic communicators. In the age of technology, we have unlimited access to every single pastor out there, basically, from a church of 10 to a church of 10,000. Almost all of them are online. And that can be an, an awesome thing. It can be an incredibly helpful thing as we seek to follow Jesus. But if we aren't careful, we can also let it create a feeling of inadequacy within us in the area of personally communi- communicating the gospel to people in our circle because we don't feel like we match up with John Piper or we don't feel like we match up with Francis Chan or Stephen Furtick or John McCarthy. Picky, you know, insert your celebrity pastor here. We feel like we don't match up with them. But Paul doesn't say by dynamically communicating the truth. He says by setting forth the truth plainly. By simply doing that, by simply sticking to the whole truth and nothing but the truth, if you will, Paul can stand confidently in the presence of his Christian peers and in the presence of God himself with no need to defend himself, his ministry, or his message because he's stuck to the truth of God's word. And that's all we need as well. Laying forth the truth plainly. But you'll notice here that there's no promise that everyone we communicate the truth to is going to say, okay, yep, sign me up. That wasn't Paul's experience. Again, read through the book of Acts. That wasn't Paul's experience by a long shot. And I don't think it's our experience as well. It's certainly not mine. Paul continues. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So in the previous chapter, Paul Paul uses the image of the veil that Moses would put in front of his face after experiencing the glory of the Lord in the tent of meeting. And he uses that as an illustration of this barrier between us and our ability to understand Jesus, the message of Jesus and the glory of God that Jesus displayed. So he's talking about the gospel being veiled. He's talking about those who have heard the message but failed to respond. And the point Paul is trying to make here is that it's not due to a failure on his part that people haven't responded to the message of truth. As he said, he's laid out the truth, he's done it plainly, but there's still a barrier, a veil present for some. But where does, where does this barrier come from? Just as there are human opponents to the gospel, there are certainly spiritual opponents as well. And chief among them is, is Satan, the enemy. Satan does his best to distract, to keep focus anywhere but on Christ. This can come in the form of unhealthy habits like addiction or greed or anger. Or it can come in the form of over-focusing on things that aren't inherently bad, like education or career or even family. Satan will use anything and everything at his disposal to try and keep the focus off of Christ. And in doing that, he pulls the veil down over our eyes. 
For those who don't know Jesus, Satan does everything he can to prevent the message of Jesus from reaching their ears. And even then, Satan's goal is first for a person to hear the gospel and to respond with anger, to respond with rejection, to respond with revulsion, or at the very least with a healthy, eh, nah. That's Satan's goal is to have that response to the message of truth. The lie that Satan wants us to believe is that we can provide our every need on our own, that the things of this world can save, the things of this world can ultimately satisfy. That's the lie he wants us to believe. And even those of us who have made a decision to follow Christ, Satan is constantly trying to distract us from focusing on him. He's constantly trying to get us off track. He's constantly trying to get us to lose heart. And so Paul's reminding the church not to become discouraged if those we reach out to fail to respond. Instead, in the midst of that, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of the truth that we hold on to. And so Paul gives a reminder of that, what that truth is. Verse 5, he says, What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The message of Jesus has always been countercultural. It always has been. Human nature naturally tries to put self at the top of the pyramid and everything else as subordinate to self. And then Jesus came along and provided us with a model to live by that totally turns that upside down. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And the life that's described there is completely countercultural to what culture was back then. And we look at it today through the lens of today's culture, and it's still the complete opposite of the messages that we see in movies, in TV, in the news, whatever. Social media. The message of Jesus is countercultural. Throughout his life, Jesus displayed, instead of a self-seeking attitude, he, he displayed the, the attitude of a servant, never lording his wisdom and his influence over others in order to better his own lot. Jesus never did that, not once. Towards the end of his life, Christ communicated his desire for his followers to have the same mindset, the same attitude towards servant leadership that he did when he washed his disciples' feet and then instructed them to to do similar uh, in the coming age, to be a servant leader. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He reminds the church that even though he holds a position of high influence, it's not him they follow. It's not the church of Paul. It's the church of Christ. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And Paul's influence only gives him greater opportunity to serve them as Christ is desired. And furthermore, even though many in the church in Corinth, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth planting that church and ministering to that church. And so many of the people that he's writing to, many of the people in that church probably came to know Jesus through the personal message and testimony of Paul. Paul wants to make it clear that it was God who opened the eyes of their heart. It was God who removed the veil of Satan from their eyes. 
and allowed them to hear and understand and accept the message of Jesus. He says it's God, the same God who at the very beginning of creation said, let there be light, and there was light. Open the eyes of our heart. Shine his light on our hearts so we can understand the message of Jesus. Humans like Paul or like us may be the vessels that God uses to communicate his message, but it's God himself who gives the ability to understand that. And I think the encouragement of this passage is, is twofold. Number one, when the gospel finally clicks for us, when we place our faith in Jesus, we can be confident that God is active in our lives. Because if God wasn't active in our lives, we wouldn't have the ability to say yes to Jesus. Without him, we'd be still grasping around in spiritual blindness looking to fulfill what's missing in our lives with earthly things. Our faith is evidence. Exhibit A of God's presence in our lives. And that's encouraging. And secondly, Paul, Paul was given a massive platform. Not only did he personally minister to many, many, many people over the course of his life, we've been reading his words for thousands of years. God gave Paul an incredible platform. And he was uniquely equipped, he was uniquely gifted to be successful with that. Paul was incredibly intelligent, he was highly educated, he was already influential, and clearly, you read through the account of Paul, he was a driven individual. He put his mind to something, and he put his all into it to make sure that he did it well. So Paul was uniquely equipped and gifted to be successful with that. But even with all of those credentials, Paul's ministry would have been nothing without the work of God in his life and in the lives of those he ministered to. And even with all of those credentials, it wasn't smooth sailing for Paul either, figuratively and literally, right? Over the course of of Paul's ministry, he was literally in a shipwreck. Things didn't go easy. But instead of looking at those obstacles and collapsing under the pressure of them, just giving up, saying, I'm done, and waving the white flag, Paul relies upon the fortitude that we can find in God's active grace in our lives. That fortitude gives us the capability to stand up to opposition and to endure the frustration that comes from moments of perceived failure in outreach or ministry. Our platform to reach the lost might not look like Paul's. In fact, it probably won't. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus, I want to remind you today that you do have a platform. It might be your workplace. It might be a ministry you volunteer in. It might be a one. It might be a youth group. It might be your family. It might be your friend group. It might be the cashier that you run into all the time at Costco or Aldi or Hy-Vee. You do have a platform. And I think it can be easy for us to lose heart and not realize that it's happened. And that's why we need to be constantly evaluating the health of our personal ministry. So if you're sitting there thinking, I'm feeling burnt out by failure or unfruitful attempts at sharing the gospel, 
I hope you're reminded that God's mercy is active in your life. And I hope you're reminded that you do have everything you need because of God's mercy in your life. And if you're on the opposite end of that and you're on fire for your ministry, I, want, I, want, I hope you're reminded that opposition remains. That it probably won't be smooth sailing for the rest of your life in that area. But in Christ, you can continue in the face of that. Life on its own can be discouraging, whether it's the flu, maybe it's problems at work, maybe it's stress at home, maybe it's conflict with a friend, maybe it's just the weather. Hopefully we're getting past that part. But when circumstances in life get us down, it can be even easier to want to give up or surrender when we face opposition in our personal ministry. But I want us to be reminded this morning that God's love, God's mercy, and the truth that we hold on to is constant in all seasons of life. God's mercy, God's love, and God's truth are constant whether we feel like we're doing well or a success or whether we're starting to get discouraged by what we see as failure or unfruitfulness. Therefore, because of God's mercy, we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. Let me pray for us this morning. I'd like to invite Bobby and the worship team up to close us. But God, we do thank you that we don't have to rely upon ourselves as we seek to follow you and as we seek to serve you. Your mercy is constant. Your love is constant. And I pray as we go forward today, Lord, that if we've been discouraged, that Lord, you would help us to find that fortitude that we can find within your gospel, within your promises and truth. Lord, we continue to pray for for Nathan as well as he um, tries to get over the flu. Lord, that you would be with him, that your grace would abound. Lord, I pray that you would open up opportunities for us. Help us to see what our platform is. Lord, and to seek after you in that day in and day out. Lord, in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.